0: Good morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning, again, this Lord's Day. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bible and your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 19. And you'll find your place there in Luke 19 in verse 11. where We're going to read to verse 27 as we consider the parable of the ten minus. As you're finding your place, let me say a few words of introduction. We live in between the two advents of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, He came in humility to seek us and to save us through His suffering, His death for our sake, and His resurrection unto glory. Soon He will come again in that glory to complete the work of our salvation. And on that day, He will welcome His people into the joy of His kingdom. But He will also cast out all who have refused Him in unbelief. As we think about this and consider these two advents of our Lord, a question arises, and should arise in our mind. How should we live? What kind of people ought we to be in between the two advents of Christ? The text before us, in, in it, Jesus answers this question for His disciples and for us through a parable by calling His disciples to live as faithful servants of our Lord, seeking to advance His glory through the gifts that He has given us as we wait for Him and the fulfillment of His kingdom work. And so if you found your place then in Luke chapter 19, would you follow along with me as I read from 11 to verse 27. As they heard these things, He proceeded to tell a parable. Because He was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And they said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Father in heaven, we pray, Lord, now that you would work in our hearts and our minds to give us understanding, to understand this parable and what Jesus would have us understand concerning the kingdom, concerning his coming, and concerning our responsibilities, our obligations, our privileges here on earth as we wait for that day. Through your word, Lord, we pray that you would make us to be like these faithful servants who seek your business your kingdom while we wait for the return of our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> in one sense, when we think about this parable, it's a little bit complex. Not that I think that the message is complex or hard to understand, but there's a lot of things going on. There are many different individuals in this parable, many different characters. We have a noble man. We have his ten servants, three of whom we call into focus and we are able to see how they responded to his orders. We also have a citizenry that opposes this Lord. And we have to consider each group or each person and what the message is for us from each example in this parable. So that's why I say it's complex. It has different ideas. It's not simply one united. It is one united message, but with many Points being made to different audiences in some sense or some form. And so there's a complexity to it. But it's not as if we can't get at the meaning of this text simply by doing what we normally do when we work through a text and we, uh, we study it, we are observant, we consider the passage in its narrative context, we consider the question, what prompted Jesus to tell this parable? And we'll also look forward a little bit, preview future passages to see how those later passages are informed by this parable and inform our interpretation of this parable. We'll carefully observe the characters in this narrative that Jesus tells, their actions, their reasoning for their actions. We'll evaluate whether or not they seem to be plain dealers, honest individuals, that is, or whether or not uh, they are untrustworthy in some way. And by considering all of these things, I think that we'll come at the meaning of this parable and understand its importance to us today. Now, from the context, we can discern why Jesus told this parable. He was near to Jerusalem, and we're reminded that Luke has unfolded a narrative throughout his gospel where Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. He reminds us again and again. The last two weeks, Jesus was on the way to Jericho in anticipation of going to Jerusalem, we've taken our eyes off of Jerusalem and considered what he had to do in Jericho but now we return to this fact that he's near to Jerusalem but with his nearness to Jerusalem what we find is that the disciples still are struggling to understand what he's been teaching them not only about his mission but about the kingdom of god <clears throat> they think that there will be an immediate appearance of the kingdom of god and this doesn't this misunderstanding is not simply because they failed to understand what he has said about his death and about his resurrection and about his ascension. They have failed to understand that. But even after his resurrection, when he appeared to them, they were wondering, is it going to happen now? In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, we read these words in verse 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom There, in very clear terms, not in a parable, Jesus tells his disciples what their mission is. He gives them, as it were, their marching orders, and he assures them that the Spirit of God will empower them in the work to which they are called. But in terms of when will the kingdom of God appear in its fullness? When will we see that? We don't know. We never will know until we, excuse me, until we see it. We won't know until that day. For only the Father knows what He has fixed in his authority. And so we see that the disciples still had that misunderstanding, even after they understood what Jesus had said. Excuse me, concerning His resurrection. Should have done that earlier. I'm all better now, thank you. Excuse me. So that's why Jesus tells them this parable. He wanted them to understand that his kingdom would come only after. Period of time, and he wanted them as a result to embrace a life of faithful service. In the meantime, now the parable concerns a nobleman. This nobleman, we could render this as a well-born man. The language that terminology indicates that he's not just someone who's born to wealthy or powerful parents, but he's actually one whose character is 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 consistent with his nobility. He is a well-born man. He is, indeed, in himself, a noble man. And he goes off into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. This picture would have been familiar to the people of Jesus' day. It's something that they saw play out in their own lives. Herod the Great, his son Archelaus, and Herod Antipas after them. All of those men were designated as the king in Judea, but they weren't really the supreme king. They had to, at some point in their lives, take a journey to Rome, and appear before Caesar, and receive from Caesar that kingdom. So that's the picture that is presented in parable. Then Caesar would say to those men, here, you are designated as the ruler, as the king of this region of my empire. So Jesus uses this familiar picture in this parable, but that's really where the similarities end. This nobleman is nothing like those wicked rulers of Jesus's own day. Nevertheless, his disciples would have understood the picture. Now, while he's away, and before he departs, he leaves ten of his servants with instructions. To each he gave a mina, a relatively small sum of money, which is equal to about 100 days' wages. You can think of it about uh, like enough money to purchase a used car. Not much more than that. This passage is parallel to the parable of the talents, which may be familiar to you. Very similar in Matthew's Gospel. There... The master, however, gives the the servants of his different numbers of talents. And those talents represent much larger sums of money. Those sums of money would be equal to, in some cases, 20 or more years of wages. And so you see the difference. It's as if, in this case, he has given them enough funding to say, go and start a bakery in a small town. And in that other case, he's given these men a small business to manage, a business of perhaps a million dollars of annual revenue. It's a very different picture, although the same idea is at play. And these men, these servants, who've received these minas, are instructed with a simple instruction, do business until I come. Notice what he does not say. He does not say to them, make more money. He does not say, increase the value of my possessions. He gives them a small sum of money, and he says, Do business, and they have freedom to do whatever business they want. They have freedom to do it however they want. They merely are required to obey. Even if all of their actions are a colossal failure and they lose everything, at least if they put that that funding into action and do business, they will be faithful to their master. Notice also that these men are described as servants. We could render that as slaves. In other words, they are not like employees who are free to end their employment. They are obligated to obey their master's commands. They must do what he tells them to do. So these ten servants each receive a mina, and they're each sent out to do business. Then we see this note in verse 14. These citizens that are introduced, they oppose this man. They hate him. The the sense of that language is they were hating him. It's a consistent attitude of hatred and opposition towards this noble man. And they know that he is to receive a kingdom. And so they say, they say to this man, uh, they they, they send a delegation after him, a group of representatives to represent their own message, presumably to the emperor who will designate this man as king. They send after him the representatives and they say, we don't want this man to reign over us. We don't want him to be king. We do not want this to happen. And we'll come back to this point, but I simply want you here to observe The absolute futility of their uh, opposition to him. They say, we don't want him to reign over us. And what are the next words? When he returned, having received the kingdom. (laughs) It's just so matter of fact. Now, we'll leave them for the moment. We won't see what happens to them immediately, but they're introduced to us. That's not a feature in that similar passage in the parable of the talents. But here, Jesus draws attention to those who would oppose him. That's going to be important for identifying who these people represent. Now, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered that his servants should be brought to him. He wanted to know what they had done with the money that he had given to them, what they had gained by their obedience, by doing business. And so the first comes to him and says, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Notice what he says. He addresses the nobleman as Lord, this man who is now the king, and we will call him the king, for he has received his kingdom. And he's no longer just an old man. He is the king. And he is the lord of this servant. And the servant says to him, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. What you're missing in that whole statement is any indication that that servant is looking, about looking at himself and his own efforts. He's not in that sentence as a subject or an object. It's your mina and your mina made the more. He doesn't count what he has done is anything more than his obligation and his faithful service. He has a humble, in other words, a humble perspective on himself. And yet, his Lord doesn't look at him and say, well, good, you did what you were supposed to do. No, instead, he says to him, well done, good servant. Beautiful words for any faithful servant to hear from his Lord. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And you could imagine if someone became king suddenly of your land and he had given you a trust of some perhaps $20,000 to manage and you managed it so well that you created a business that was able to bring in revenues of $100,000. And then suddenly he came over and said, now you're going to be the governor of a region that has 10 cities in it. That would be a huge step up in this kingdom. But he has shown himself faithful and recognizing his faithfulness His Lord gives him that further reward of authority. Or put it another way, he gives him a share in his kingdom and in the rule and governance of his kingdom. And as we continue, we see a second servant who comes. These two, these three, in fact, will represent all of the ten in some way or some form, but we only need three to make the point. The second servant comes, and in his case... The one mina made five minas. Yes, it's less than the first servant, but it's still a good return. We're talking about a fivefold increase in what he originally received. It's a good return. And he, too, is a faithful servant. We can assume that he would have also heard those same words, well done, good servant. For in the parable of the talents, we see that kind of thing to both of the servants in that similar fashion. But in, ca- in this case, moving quickly through the parable, we simply see these words, you are to be over five cities. He also is entrusted with a much greater trust. And then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Why did he do that? Why did he just take that money and put it away and do nothing with what his master had given him? He gives us his explanation, but we need to evaluate. Do we think this man's explanation reveals the real truth in his heart? He says, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Is that true? Of this master? Is that true of this Lord? In some sense, he will show his severity with this man. But this man fixates on his severity and treats his severity as if this is the only true thing about this man. And it's unfair and it's uncruel. He's a severe man and yet he has just shown himself to be a master who is kind and gracious to his servants. His faithful servants did not deserve... To be entrusted with that greater trust. And yet, in his grace and his love and his kindness, he gave them that trust. He gave them that authority. He gave them that prominence. He's just shown himself to be, indeed, a man of noble birth, a good, well-born man. That is, one who exercises true nobility in his life. But this man says, You're a severe man, and it's not really fair, is what he's expressing. You take what you didn't deposit. You reap what you didn't sow. You want to say to that man, grab him around the shoulders and say, whose mina was it in the first place? What are you but a servant with whom he deposited his mina with instructions to do service that is right and to which you are obligated? That's not the way this man thinks. So we have to ask the question, did he really fear him? Was he really afraid of his Lord? If He was willing to say, I will disregard his orders. I will not do what he told me to do. I will not seek the increase of his possessions. I will just spend my time focused entirely upon myself. No, I submit to you, the only person he recognized as Lord in those actions was himself. But this king does not defend himself. He does not defend his honor He does not address the issue of this man's slander, but instead he condemns him with his own words. This is like a situation in the court of law where a witness, someone is is bearing witness in his own case. He's a defendant, and he goes to the witness stand and accidentally, not realizing it, he reveals the truth of the matter. He reveals his own failing. He reveals his own guilt simply by not being careful in his own words. He says, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man. In other words, he's saying, okay, so you say you believed me to be a severe man. You knew that. You should have acted in accordance with at least that thing that you say to be true. If you really feared me and my severity, then you would have acted differently. Even if you did not act out of faithfulness and love, and an appropriate sense of service, you would have acted in fear if you really feared me. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? It literally put it on the table, whether it's in the, with the bankers or put it to business. The point is to create an increase. At my coming, I might have collected it with interest. So what does he do with this man? He says to those who are standing by, another group that we are now just introduced to, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. I was driving down to Niles this week with my daughter for her chess class and we were listening to this and talking about this and I asked her what her thoughts were on that text. I said, does it seem unfair? She said, yeah. I think to all of us, it probably seems at first unfair. We are predisposed to think that something that would be just would be something more like what Robin Hood did. He stole from the rich and gave to the poor. Is Jesus saying that what's right and good is something quite different where you take from the poor and give to the rich? No, I suggest that to understand this proverbial statement, we need to interpret it in light of the parable and in turn, it will enable us to interpret the parable itself. We think about what did people have in this parable? The first two servants had the possession of cities. But they had the possession of cities because they were faithful. Those possessions reflected their faithfulness. And so they were given a greater trust. The one who did not have, did not have cities. And why did he not have cities? Because he was not faithful. And so even that little thing that he had was taken away from him. Think of it from the perspective of the king, or any business owner, if you had a business and you had three managers and two of them demonstrated their ability, one probably demonstrated greater ability than the other, but they both demonstrated their faithfulness and their ability, you would give them a greater trust. But if you had a third employee who did not work when he came to work, who wasted his time and produced no profit for the company, you would not entrust anything to him, in fact. What you entrusted to him previously, you would take from him and trust it to someone else who was more faithful. That is the picture that is painted in this parable, and that then explains the principle in that proverbial statement. To the one who has, more will be given. Incidentally, Jesus uses that same statement in other contexts. He used it in Luke chapter 8 with the parable of the sower. When he interpreted that parable to the disciples, And he explained the giving of that parable and why they were given the interpretation. In addition to the parable, he uses that same phrase. And the reason why is they had something that others who heard and did not receive the interpretation did not have. Namely, they responded to an earlier clear preaching of the gospel and a call to repent and follow Christ in faith. Others did not. And so further revelation was denied to those who did not receive that first Clear revelation. When you put it in that context, you understand this is not a matter of unfairness. It's a matter of recognizing faithfulness and honoring faithfulness in a way that is right. And so, what seems surprising, even to the individuals in this text who are standing by, and seems surprising to us, makes quite a bit of sense and turns out to be a very wise thing in the end. Finally, Jesus turns his attention to the enemies of this man. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them for me. I think we should acknowledge the fate of that wicked servant was different from the fate of these men. And we'll come to understand in a, in a few minutes what that wicked servant represents. I will suggest now, and I'll explain my reasoning later, that I think that he does represent a believer in Christ who is saved, but one who in this life does not live his life as a faithful servant of Christ. And there's this distinction that we'll see. But here we see a distinction. Here are the enemies. And they are dealt with in an even more severe way in a harsher way. They are brought before their Lord and they are slaughtered. We say, is that right? Would it not be right? Should not people who uh, wrongfully rebel against one who is rightfully appointed over them in authority should they not face a harsh judgment. That's the picture here. And everyone in that context would have accepted it. I think about our own civil war, when our nation fought a war where half of our states rejected the authority to which they had agreed in the Constitution. And the other half of the states went to war against them to say, you cannot leave this union just because you don't like the person who was elected president and his policies. And uh, even today, many disagree about uh, my interpretation of those events, but the point that I'm making here is that we can see at least that many look at that and say, no, it was right to use the power of the state to enforce rightful submission to authority, not an excessive submission, but here we're talking about one who's a king. And ultimately, it's representing our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings, who is the authority over all authorities, who is our maker. And if we rebel against His rule in unbelief and opposition, our righteous and just condemnation is like the condemnation of these men. So that's what Jesus is showing in the conclusion of that parable. Now, as we preview what's to come in the future weeks, Jesus will be, in fact, presented as a king coming into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. And yet he will be rejected by the scribes and the chief priests who opposed him repeatedly in the days before his crucifixion. And ultimately, their rejection concludes in that crucifixion. Nevertheless, he rises, he ascends, he goes to the right hand of the Father, and he receives his kingdom. And so we see quite plainly that this parable prepares us for that narrative to understand what he's saying about himself, that he is to go into, not a far country, but into heaven to the right hand of the Father to receive a kingdom as was prophesied of the Son of Man, that he would come to the ancients of days and receive from him a kingdom without end, as Daniel spoke in Daniel chapter 7. And this must happen. and Nothing can stop it. Not even his death on a cross. He will deal with his opponents, his enemies as he calls them, in a way that is righteous and just. And he will deal with his servants, in a way that is gracious and just. We need to consider what that message is to all of us as we seek to be not His enemies, but His faithful servants and recognize that we are indeed His servants, whether or not we are faithful, if we have believed in Christ and received Him by faith. Now, as we interpret this parable, I want to make something very clear. This parable is not teaching That in any way whatsoever, our salvation depends upon our good works. I need to make that very clear. You can do nothing to earn your standing, your salvation before God. Christ Jesus accomplished all that was necessary. And it's the only thing that will save you on that day when He comes. It's the only thing that will transfer you from the enemies to the servants of our Lord. Those who receive that salvation and enter into the kingdom. That depends upon Christ's death for you. It depends on His suffering for your sake. It depends on His righteousness which He lived for you. It depends upon His resurrection to ensure your eternal life. It depends upon His ascension to receive that kingdom which He will constitute in its fullness when He comes again. Your salvation depends on on that which is received through faith and faith alone. Nothing in this parable contradicts what I have just said. But what this parable does show us is that for those who are Jesus' disciples, he has given us instructions. They are simple instructions. They are instructions that give us a great deal of freedom. Not like the text we read this morning about Nadab and Abihu, who had very specific instructions and could not depart one way or the other in any little bit from the clear, specific instructions they had in the execution of their priesthood. God has given us simple instructions. Go, as we think of the Great Commission, go into all nations, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded, even to the end of the age. We have great freedom with how we put that into practice, just like the men in this parable, simply were told to do business. And they could have done it according to their gifts and their abilities with great freedom. Yet they had to do, if they were going to be faithful, what he had commanded them to do. And what they found upon his return was that he recognized those who were faithful and he rebuked those who were unfaithful. In this text, then, as we think about the parable and its interpretation applied to Christ's disciples, it's teaching us to be faithful in the time between Christ's coming. Now, we're not told to do business. We're told to make disciples, which, in a sense, is the business of the kingdom. The Apostle Paul writes about his own work in doing this business in 1 Corinthians 3. After a long passage where he explained his ministry, and how he thought of his ministry. He wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver but only as through fire. The day which Paul describes is the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's return, the day that we see depicted in the parable. On that day, our lives will be put to the test. The work that we have done as disciples of Christ will be put to the test. And if our work is laid on a foundation other than Jesus Christ, that work will not last. The faithful servants in the parable laid their work on the foundation through their faithful obedience to their Lord's will. Not only because they produced an increase, but they also did it in recognition of His Lordship and His glory. reflected in that simple phrase, Lord, your mina has made ten more. Your mina has made five more. They did not do it for their own glory, but they did it faithfully. The one who lays his work on another foundation will be saved if he believes in Christ, but his work will not endure. And he will not receive that reward. The servant who disregarded his master's command is like this person. His foundation was himself, his own interests, his own purposes. And there are many Christians who live in this way. Now that day will bring a complete and final destruction for those who utterly oppose the rule of Christ. Here's a warning for you. If you wonder, are you in that midst? Are you an enemy of the gospel? Have you not believed in what we have heard from Jesus and from His Word concerning salvation. If not, I encourage you urgently this morning to reckon with what is coming for those who remain enemies of the cross and the enemies of our Lord. Don't remain an enemy. Repent of your sin. Believe in the gospel that Jesus died for your sin and rose from the grave, and you will be saved on that day. That is a gracious gift, a gracious gift alone. You can do nothing to earn it, only believe. But if you have believed that message, you're called to something further. You're called to live a life of faithful service as a citizen of the kingdom of God. A citizen and a servant, a slave even of Christ. Now what does that look like in our context? I'm going to give you a few ideas But we can summarize it in terms of an attitude and an action that follows from the attitude. And that attitude is reflected in three words, submission, trust, and fear. Faithful servants submit to 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 the present lordship of Christ. Faithful servants trust in the gracious kindness of Christ. And faithful servants fear the righteous judgment of Christ. And all of these reflect the right attitude of a faithful servant of Christ. Our commission is a commission from our Lord, from Jesus Christ. If we believe that He is a Lord, then we must obey this commission. We ought not to think of ourselves as employees or independent contractors who are free to do, in the end, what we want to do. We should think of ourselves as slaves of Christ who are under obligation to do what He has called us to do. In this light, we recognize that His commission to us is to make disciples. It doesn't matter if you make three or a hundred in terms of receiving the good and faithful servant. It matters that you are faithful according to your gifts to do that. If you are faithful according to your gifts to work at making disciples, we'll consider ways that we can do that in a little bit, then you are being submissive to the present lordship of Christ. There's much more to say about that. We will in the days and years to come. We share the gospel with friends and neighbors. We raise our children to be faithful men and women. We encourage one another in the church through acts of love and by discipling one another. These are simple, ordinary acts that Christ has commanded us that reflect that we believe in the Lordship of Christ. We trust in the gracious kindness of Christ if we are to be faithful servants. We look at the fact that this parable shows us a Lord who rightly rewards those who were faithful according to His wisdom. Five cities to one, ten cities to another. Does that mean in the kingdom that what we're going to be is governors of cities? I, I don't think so. I think that that's in the parable world. What does it look like? I don't have a clue. I'm not wise to discern what's the appropriate reward. Jesus is wise to do that. And He's gracious and He's loving. And we don't deserve it. But He has given us opportunity to, to, to do this, to show faithfulness and to receive such rewards like this. And so, We trust in His gracious kindness and His wisdom to do that according to His gracious kindness. And we work, ultimately, I think, simply so that when we come into the kingdom on that day, we might hear just those words, they'd be enough. Well done, good servant. That would be enough. Like a child who loves nothing more than for her father or mother to affirm what she has done is pleasing to them. And we give up even much in this life as we do this, as we pursue this life. But we do it because it's worth it. As Jim Elliott, the famous missionary, once said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So we commit ourselves to faithful service of the kingdom of Christ. And thirdly, we fear the righteous judgment of Christ. We ought not to be like that sinful, that wicked servant who did not recognize the righteousness and the severity of Christ, but rather people who see that it was right, it was just. And the most righteous and just thing that he could do to me, apart from the saving work of Christ, is to condemn me forever, but he has not because he is gracious. And yet, if I am indolent, if I am lazy and slothful in this life, and I don't labor for the service of the kingdom of Christ, I deserve to hear those words, you wicked servant. God is gracious. He will save all who trust in Christ. But He calls us to be faithful in this life, and so we should pursue that as well. We must recognize both the kindness and severity of Christ, to borrow Paul's language from Romans 11. The kindness and severity. He is not just one, or He's not just the other. But God is just, but He's also gracious. And so, we ought to live in the fear of our Lord, fearing Him like a child fears a good father, who says... I fear to offend my father, and so I will be obedient because he is a good father. He loves me, and I do not want to hear his rebuke. That's the kind of fear that we are called to live in. It's right to live in that fear, and it is best when this fear is coupled with faith and love and hope. Christ will be severe with those who do not trust him on that day, and he will also be kind to those who have feared him and trusted him on that day. And so, we submit to Christ as our Lord, we trust in His gracious kindness, and we fear His righteous judgment. And in that attitude then, in our actions, we seek not our glory, but the glory of His kingdom, and we steward the gifts that He has given us. I think on that day we will see that many who we thought to have been great servants of that kingdom... It will be seen that they were like those whom Paul spoke about in Philippians one, who preached Christ out of selfish ambition, out of envy, out of rivalry. Paul could rejoice because Christ was proclaimed. He could rejoice because the gospel was being proclaimed and the kingdom was being was expanding through that proclamation. But what he wanted for the Philippians was something better. A mind that humbled itself like Christ, a mind that sought the interests of others, not our own interests a mind that sought the glory of Christ and His kingdom. Faithful servants will seek that. Whatever we do, we ought not to do it for our own glory or to win the praise of others, but out of simple faithfulness to our Lord. Finally, faithful servants steward their gifts in the service of Christ. Here it's so important for you to understand. You're not judged against what other people have done with whatever gifts that they have been given. The second servant was not unfaithful because the first servant produced a greater increase. We are all given different gifts and we are called to steward what we are given in a way that is faithful. We are called to build on the foundation that is Christ. Some lay the foundation like Paul. Others build on it through the proclamation of the word, through discipleship, through acts of mercy, through demonstrations of love in different ways. And you don't have to be like those great missionaries who go into the jungles and give their lives as martyrs. Just simple acts of faithfulness day in and day out with what you have been given is all you need to be focused on. Don't afflict yourself because someone seems to be accomplishing more. From our perspective, it's a simple binary question, a yes, no, faithful or not faithful. And we know that we all exist on a sliding scale of a mix of faith and unbelief. But ultimately, we look forward to that day, not looking back either. That's important also. Not looking back with regret. There's still time to be faithful. So pursue faithfulness now, looking forward and saying, there is time to do these simple things. The best way to do this, I submit to you, is within the context of the local church. When we simply participate in this life together, in the ordinary practices we are given, we will be making good use of the time. That's what we read together in Ephesians 5 this morning when we read those words where Paul told the Ephesians to make the best use of the time. What did he tell them to do? Don't indulge in satisfying your own pleasures, but do things, ordinary things, that serve others, encouraging them. And what was the ordinary thing that he put before them? Sing. Hymns. and You think, well, oh, I'm not going to be commended on that day for having... Joined in worship with others. Well, if your heart is right and it's encouraging to others, that simple act is a good use of the time. And that's just reflective of so many things that we do in the context of the local church by which we serve one another. And we don't know how the Lord will multiply through what He's given us to produce much more. Let me conclude with an example to show you that and to emphasize this point it's about Mary Jones a woman who lived in Wales in the early 1800s. When she was nine, because she was poor, she began saving for a Bible. Six years later, when she was 15, she finally had enough. It was hard to afford a Bible in those days, but Mary Jones was undeterred. And so, she couldn't even afford shoes. When she finally had the money, she walked 26 miles because she heard there was a man in a neighboring town some distance away. Barefoot, 26 miles, to find him. And after searching, she found him. He was so impressed by her faith that he gave her three Bibles for the price of one. But also, the word spread about what this young lady had done. And people started to say, it's a real problem that people in Wales can't afford Bibles. We need to make them accessible and affordable to all. And they said, if Wales, why not the United Kingdom? And why not go beyond the world and so as this society tells on its website the British Bible Society was born and today they still labor to make Bibles accessible throughout the world to people who would not otherwise be able to afford them and how did it start the organization was founded by people of prominence people with wealth people like William Wilberforce but it really started because of a simple act of faithfulness for a woman who was not even entrusted with shoes by her lord She had faith and she was faithful with what she had and it multiplied. And on that day, I think we'll see a lot of people like Mary Jones who are given a great stewardship and who hear those words, well done, good servant. It doesn't matter what you start with and it doesn't matter how what you've done is measured in earthly terms. It matters that you are faithful with what you have and you work not for your glory but for Those words on that day, well done, good servant. Let's pray. Father in heaven, simply we pray that you would enable us to labor with this mindset, seeking the glory of Christ, the glory of the kingdom, glory of you, our Father. And for that affirmation, well done, good servant. So may we, O Lord, together as a church, labor faithfully for all our days, seeking first the kingdom and trusting that all these things that are promised will be added to us according to your wisdom and your providence and your plan. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.